Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi, we're back with Ayers on the Road. We're always so happy to spend a half an hour with you. And for those of you who are our regular listeners, we're grateful. And for those of you who are new, welcome. We love to talk about family, as you might have figured out. We love to talk about marriage. We love to talk about parenting. We love to talk about the hardest things in the universe, because they're never easy. And it seems like every week, as we get ready to do this show, we can think of little crises we've had, or little worries we've worked on. And One of the funniest (laughs) times for us is after we've maybe given a, a speech or a presentation to parents, and... I guess we must look pretty old because someone comes up and says, Oh, you must be so relieved. Your parenting's all done with now. Your kids have all grown up and gone. And we're like, <laughs> just oh, you boy. wait. Yeah, the, just the problems you wait. just get bigger and more expensive. And there's more of them because we're thinking about all our grandkids now. But, as well but it as also all our gets kids. more fun. We have to admit it. I mean, it's fun. It, we loved having the kids at home uh, some days. But we really loved um, now that their parents take <laughs> care of them. It's so great. Um, life is really wild and really interesting. We've had an interesting week this week. Um, all of our kids, two of our ch- kids, our oldest, one of our sons and his wife, spent uh, six months in Mozambique. When they got married, they went on a, a one-year humanitarian honeymoon. And uh, they were older. They'd worked for 10 years. Yeah, you might say, how in the world did they do that? But yeah. they were a little older, and they'd done some savings, and they thought the best way to start their marriage would be to get away from us and all the rest of the family and just be on their own. And they decided to do it through humanitarian things. They lived uh, for six months in a little village in Mozambique. And they lived for another nearly six months in a, a little town in India, in southern India, well, where in they the, helped with people who had leprosy. They actually were working um, in right with Rising Star, great organization there in southern India, um, where they did some magnificent things with those kids. It really was fun. But going but I back know, to I Mozambique, I know why you're bringing that up, Linda, um, because of Mozambique. And Mozambique, the cyclone, those of you have heard, hurricane. the worst cyclone in history just hit where they exactly where they were and so many of their friends in the organization there which is called care for life um, have lost their homes at least they have their lives because they're still piling up bodies they're still finding bodies there but um, the people they knew immediately um, are safe as far as their bodies but their homes are gone They're so just gone. The, the reason linda's bringing this up is because we just now talked to this son and daughter-in-law who live in switzerland who live in switzerland and um they were telling us an update on this crisis that's going on there and they're they're involved raising money and their little girl anina who's seven years old just held a, a lemonade stand on steroids. I mean, that's a funny way to say it, but... Oh, my goodness. She, she raised eight, 800 francs Her mom, from a lemonade stand. That's which is about $800. Um, she's actually six, honey, I think. And um, she I know it's hard to keep track of the ages of all of her grandchildren. But anyway, she um, just 
Maybe she is seven. Anyway. Don't um, want you contradict me on the age of our but grandchildren. But her mom helped her to make <laughs> slime and Play-Doh. And neighbors came and helped. And, and in Switzerland, they really just don't do lemonade stands, you know. And they thought, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> but they went out there. They had baked goods that... Um, this was an enhanced lemonade stand. They made, enhanced oh, wow. for everything by, from baked goods to slime. I, How'd you like to pick up a little bit of slime at your local lemonade stand? (laughs) (laughs) But it worked. They really sold everything. People were so generous. And uh, then all of our family took the baton and went out and uh, started raising money for these families in Mozambique. And they've all done different things. One's having a movie night at their house and charging money. And everybody's just really working on it. And, you know, the reason we bring this up first is we're talking about education today. Yeah, this is a good... kinds of education. That's a good segue into the subject of today, Linda, which is never let schooling interfere with education. <laughs> with, <laughs> with your, your kids, education. with your kids' education. Now, think about that for a minute. Think of what this little seven-year-old in Switzerland is learning by raising money for a crisis in Mozambique. Think of what she's understanding and comprehending and, you know, the fact that they'll probably go there and and visit these villages and try to help a little bit. Um, Imagine the education of that. And imagine the education of children experiencing things and traveling as their parents are able to take them and so on. And and what's got us going on this, and the reason we wanted to make a subject of it today for the show, is how many times we'll hear from parents who will say, we were going to take this trip, but, you know, the schools wouldn't let us take our child out for four days or whatever. They said it would be too, too disruptive. Or we, you know, we... We decided to go alone and and not bring the child because we didn't want to interrupt her schooling. And so it gets back to that classic phrase, which many attribute to Mark Twain. I'm not sure that we know for sure that he's the first one that said it, but, but the quote is, never let school interfere with true education for our children. And true education is a lot more than going to school. It surely is, but I do have to say that our son, who lives in Switzerland, the one we were just talking to, maybe listening, and you have to know that they find them really a lot of money. Oh, yeah, they there take are their some kids places, out of school, and yeah. in England they also do. But there's um, usually ways to find, you know, to get around it, and um, I mean, we were pretty cavalier about it. Is that the right word? I don't know. We We, we always took our kids out of school if we had a chance to travel with them or show them something or and you know the schools would put up a certain amount of fuss I remember you know one teacher saying oh I, you, you just can't allow that we just can't allow that we just we don't think your child will get a passing grade if you um, take them out of school for a week and go on this crazy trip I mean and, and often we would use the comeback well listen how about if how about if the child writes a, a paper on the experience of where we're going and what she learned and so on. And the most enlightened teachers were good with that. They'd say, okay. Well, we had... <laughs> the we, less enlightened... We, we had a so high good. school teacher who said, okay, if you're going to do this, then you need to do a slideshow and show us all this history because we, we went to New England for a month and homeschooled our kids 
We certainly think this is an important subject to get into today. And the reason we tied it to this humanitarian crisis in Mozambique is because a lot of the travel that sometimes parents have the opportunity to do with their children uh, involve going to a third world country or doing something in a humanitarian way. And we're always a little hesitant when we talk about this because the automatic question that comes up in people's mind is, well, how could I do that? It's too expensive. That's something that only a rich person could do. And the fact is that's not necessarily true. In fact, there are a lot of organizations, including the one you mentioned, Linda, Rising Star Outreach. There are a lot of organizations set up for the express purpose. These are charitable 501c3 nonprofit institutions, companies, that's whole mission is to help families from the first world, from the U.S. or from first world countries, to be able to go in for a week or a couple of weeks into a, a place with a lot of poverty and a lot of problems and, and actually do something, build a school, dig a well, set up an irrigation system or whatever that really helps a particular little village. And I have to be honest, Linda, we did that many, many times with our children. And I'll get back to the, the that's not as, as expensive as you'd think. But we did it almost for selfish reasons in the sense we wanted our children to have the kind of education that involves seeing how other people live and seeing what the world looks like and seeing what places are like that are very, very different from what they're used to, to get them out of their comfort zone. Well, and there's an underlying feeling that's kind of raising up now is like, wait a minute, if why don't you just give those people all the money it would have taken for you to go there? Because it's kind of like a circus when you go there, here come the white people, you know? And, and that gave us pause for a few minutes, but now we, as we look back, we think those kids that we're in the village, we'll never forget that week that our kids spent with them. They well, and our kids such, will never forget it. And our kids will never forget it either. It is such a, I mean, an amazing experience. It's the perfect win-win situation where your children are learning and growing and expanding and realizing how entitled they are and realizing how many blessings they have and feeling the need to give and to contribute. And at the same time, the children that they're making friends with, and believe me, children who media other children in, in this kind of setting, it doesn't matter that they speak a different language. Yeah, language they still become count. friends. They still learn from each other. Yeah. And so, um, they became fast friends. We have pictures of dandelion crowns and th just such wonderful experiences with these kids that, that playing soccer either side, a, neither side will ever forget. One of my favorite pictures is our kids playing soccer with a bunch of kids in Kenya in Africa and the soccer ball is a bunch of rags tied together, together. In, in a ball because that was the only thing they they had to play soccer but with. but do you remember we took a soccer ball we just happened to take us we didn't realize what we were getting into but we took a soccer ball and the high school kids in that group uh were going to a soccer tournament and did not have a ball didn't have a ball it was amazing <laughs> so they were so thrilled to see that but, but getting back to my point about expense i mean yes it does it costs money to fly to africa or to fly to bolivia or to a little less to go maybe to a little village in mexico or whatever and of course there's plenty of help that needs to be given in our own hometowns that 
soup kitchens or homeless shelters and whatever. But my point was going to be that uh, we did some research not long ago, and guess what? It's actually more expensive to take your kids to Disneyland for a week for a yeah. week than it is to take them on one of these humanitarian expeditions because there's very little expense. Once you're there, you sleep uh, in a village. You, you, you sleep know, on the, the only floor real of the cost room is getting because there. it's um, vacation in the summer. We went actually to Bolivia and it, our Christmas vacation is the middle of their summer so it really is um, not that expensive once you get there. We're off on a little bit of a tangent because the the point of today's show is what is true education what and, and how does that differ or expand on what kids are learning in school and who is really responsible for your child's education? Is it the schools? Is it the government? Is it those who make the rules? Is it the teachers' unions? Or is it you? Are you the one really ultimately where the buck stops and who's responsible for the the level and breadth of your child's education? And we've got a lot more to say on that subject and we just want you to think during this brief little break again about this intriguing little cliche or statement that is attributed often to Mark Twain, never let school get in the way of your children's true education. Um, So we will have some ideas about what to do in your own home to supplement education um, at the school and hang on for a few minutes and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we're back, Richard and Linda Ayer on Ayers on the Road, talking today about a fascinating little statement, never let school interfere with your children's education. Now, we don't want to, for a minute, suggest any critical attitude toward our schools. Boy, are we grateful for schools. Oh, I mean, we are. When you think what, what schools do for our children, when you think of the dedication of so many teachers and so many people who aren't paid enough, frankly, and yet who care so lovingly and teach our children so many things. Well, so. we have a son who is a premier teacher, and not only are they not paid enough, they have to you know, hand out funds all year long from their own pockets to do things with kids that they really want to do to educate them. So we love teachers and we love schools. We love public schools, but we love charter schools. We love private schools. There is a real problem when parents get it in their mind that the school and the government is in charge of their kids' education, and all they have to do is get them there, or get them to catch the bus or whatever, and the school will take care of everything else. The, The the better attitude, and the one that has better results. And we all, you've all seen the, the studies that show the single most important factor in how well a child does in school is the involvement of the parent. But we're not just talking about parents' involvement in schools. We're talking about parents who take the attitude that I am ultimately responsible for my kid's education. And what they get in school is only a part of that education. I'm grateful for the school. I'm glad for what it does for my kids. But it's up to me to say, what is a complete education for my child? And what do I need to do 
in addition to what the kids are getting in school and in addition to my support and help in the school, what else can I do as a parent to make sure my child is truly educated, meaning understands as much as they, as they can about the world, um, understands the things that schools don't teach, that I need to teach in my home, and has an opportunity through books or through other kinds of learning or through travel. In many cases, nothing can substitute for being in a place and experiencing certain things. What can I do as a parent to complete that whole picture of my child's education? Well, um, let us share a couple things that we did with our kids when they were home as far as uh, the other three R's. You know, we always talk about the three R's that you reading, writing, arithmetic that you learn at school, and that's come from, you know, hundreds of years ago. That's what they always say, but... Reading and writing and arithmetic. There's a song about that one that's almost come to me. Reading and writing and arithmetic. Okay, okay. Taught to the tune of the hickory stick. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> I haven't thought of that for a long time. I mean, that was a time when the schools and education in the schools involved the hickory stick. Right. To teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> and not even spelled correctly. That is really funny. Um, but uh, we like to think about the other three R's that the school never teaches our children. I mean, this is just one way to think about it. We've talked a little about getting kids on trips and exposing them to things and that aspect of education. But there is also this thing about what are the other three R's? What are the things that schools don't teach that you could argue are really more important than reading, writing, and arithmetic, or at least as important? And those are what we call the other three R's. One is relationship skills. Now, kids learn social things by going to school, of course. But to really prioritize and learn relationships is a, is a powerful, powerful thing. The second of the other three R's is responsibility. And again, schools teach that in some ways. But are you teaching it as a parent by giving your kids real responsibility in your home and in your family and so on? And the third of the other three R's is right brain learning. And that, in a way, is my favorite one. It's the idea that, you know, what schools teach, and, and they have to do this. This is the only way you could run a school that I can think of. But you teach what's called convergent learning. In other words, here's a question, kids, and you're all supposed to come to this answer. You're all supposed to converge to this answer. Right. And that's sort of the left brain. That's the logical brain. That's the, the testing skill brain. And some kids are great at that, and others are not good at it. We had some that were woefully bad at testing, even though they were really smart in other ways. But that convergent learning... And, and the, the other R, the right brain, brain learning, the other hemisphere of the brain, is the intuitive, creative, divergent learning, where you ask one question that can have lots of answers, and no particular one is right or wrong. That's another way of helping kids to think. Give us an example of that, Linda. Okay, so we love to have dinner hour. We called it dinner hour. I'm not sure it always lasted an hour, but 
And we couldn't do it every night, and it got harder and harder as the kids got older and got into all the music and athletics. But we pressed for it. We though. really pressed that for table, those that three table nights was a week. The, the the classroom in our house. We did, and um, for example, on one night we would have what we call speeches, and we would say, "Okay, now we're going to give you one minute to give a speech," and we instructed them, "You have to start out with something that gets the attention of everybody at the table, and then you have to wrap it up in one minute. You can say whatever you want, but put you a little story in there, gotta put be a creative, humor in. whatever you want." And uh, and it was really hard at first to get them to understand what we meant, but it was pretty amazing what they came up with. Well, I mean, we were I trying to teach them to started, think on their feet. We started and kind of gave them an idea of what to do, and then they we just said, okay, one minute on doorknobs, go. And they had to give a one-minute speech on doorknobs, and... Boy, Just any obscure they little were subject. creative. They came up with the wildest things. Well, it taught creativity, that's for sure. And my favorite one, just chiming in on that, Linda, is we would play a game called the similar game. This is a perfect example of divergent learning as opposed to convergent learning. We'd say something like, okay, what's the same about a light bulb and a turnip? And they'd have to think and think, and, oh, I don't know what the answer is. Or we'd say, what's similar about a telephone and a turtle? And the, here's the interesting thing. The younger the kids were, the less they'd been to school, the better they were at this game. Yeah, they were really good at it. You know, like the older kids like, sorry, there's there's no, there's no similarities. Well, or they'd want, they were looking for the one right answer, like they're yeah. trained to do at school, convergent learning. What's the answer? That What is the answer to what's similar about a telephone and a turtle? And someone would say, uh, well, um, they both start with T. And, oh, and the yeah, older kids right. would say, oh, that's the answer. That's it. That's the answer, <laughs> right? And And... We'd say, well, that's one answer, but there's probably hundreds of answers. What of are some answers. others? And the, the older ones would scratch their heads like, I don't know. And the younger ones would say, oh, well, they both have curved surfaces. Oh, let's oh, see. Yeah, that's they right. both could oh. be green. And then I think Josh, our little quiet guy <laughs> who hardly ever said anything, popped up. He was about six. And he said, they would both cease to function if a truck ran over them. <laughs> <laughs> That and is you true. can see the lights going on. There. Oh, there's not just one answer. There's dozens of it. There's a lot. I can think of as many answers as I want. And it sort of opens their minds in a new way. And that's how you want them to think. The other, we'd play the question game, you know, because, again, that's the reverse of school. At school, the teacher asks the questions, and you're supposed to come up with the answer, right? Right. But the real skill in life, especially now, I mean... Folks, we live in a world where answers are a dime a dozen. You can Google anything, right? But a good question, that's the skill. That's the art. So we'd give kids a topic at the dinner table and say, what's the best question you can think of, the single best question you can think of about railroads or about the sun or about, you know, rocket ships just anything yeah and and let them think what's the best question and you know what happened i remember this so clearly linda and our our kids do this with our grandkids now the minute the dinner classroom was over they were off to the 
Oh, in those in days, those it days, was encyclopedia. And now to get the, the answers. To, they were off to find out the answer to that question and to go on Google and because they had thought of the question. If you think of your own question, you become fascinated in the answer. Well, and that has kind of spread out as the years have gone by. And we've tried to get our kids to learn how to ask questions to people that they meet because yeah, yeah. that is the really important thing to know about getting to know people or to breaking the ice. And actually, our oldest grandson just got married. He married the cutest girl. She luckily turned 20 before they got married. But she <laughs> was she's the master of questioning. That's what you love about her most. Oh my gosh, she's so great. She just, in fact, one night we had dinner with she and our son, who is also a master questioner. It was hilarious to see them go at it and try to figure out who could well, figure out the most about each usually, other. Usually when Linda meets someone, Linda's asking all the questions. You're great at this, honey. You're finding well, out everything about that person. But with this little Abby... She was. She oh, was, she's. Uh, she she's was competing master. with you. She was asking you more questions than you asked her. Well, she's so darling. And afterwards, I said, "Abby, did did you? Is this just a gift to do this, or were you taught to do this?" She said, "Oh, I was taught to do that. I was kind of shy when I was a child." And my dad said, "You know what, Abby? The best way to break this, break the ice with any new situation, and get the attention off yourself onto somebody else is start asking questions." Yeah, and uh, it really is an amazing gift. Um, so I, I'm not all of our kids are great at it, but some are are really superb. And of course, we'd also do the other two R's. We'd spend some time there at dinner talking about responsibility and how how Jonah was doing on his job of keeping the backyard clean or whatever. And we'd and we'd talk about or handing out responsibilities. Yeah, and, and the relationships that you're mentioning formed by questions and so on. And we would try to give the kids a combination of things. One, a gratitude for school and, you know, really appreciate your school and your teachers and respect those teachers and do your best and and get A's and prepare yourself for college and so on. But at the same time, don't ever think that that's all of your education. There's so much more. And then we would try to find times and ways to take them with us on trips. Well, yeah, and, you know, you can learn a lot just from your own backyard. We know that uh, Emerson and um, Thoreau lived in the same village in New England. And they, one was the traveler of the world, and the other one said, you can find everything you want in your own backyard. Yeah, Thoreau, as Thoreau said, the man exactly. who travels is a fool because everything you need to know is in your own backyard, but... I tend to agree a little more with Emerson on that one. <laughs> you, When you get kids, it, it is amazing how the learning curve steepens with your children when you get them out of their comfort zone. You get them away. You get them in places that they're curious about and that they've never seen before. Yeah, and, you know, it doesn't have to be far away. Um, we have a daughter who's homeschooling her kids, her twins, just uh, half-time. And it's so flexible now. It's so awesome that you can do that. But she just takes them, she took them to a mall, the Layton Mall in Utah, in Salt Lake, or in Layton. And they have a fabulous little hands-on aquarium right there that you can go to. There are so many things that you can do to educate your kids just outside your home. We hope you've enjoyed this somewhat rambling, but in another way kind of focused discussion today on what education really is and how you as the parent are really the one in charge 
And we hope you'll give it a little further thought and ask yourself, are my kids getting the full, true education that I really want them to have? And am I taking the responsibility to be sure that they do? Well, good luck with thinking about this week and join us again next time on Irish on the Road. See you next time.